Hi, thanks for listening to Top Audiobooks. Remember to follow our channel here on the platform, and also our social media. We prepare a graphic of the book, with the author's key points and main ideas. Click that book graphic link in description now, and have access to an illustrated material with simple and easy steps, so you know everything about the book in minutes. You're listening to the book summary presentation of Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, narrated by Larry G. Jones. The Big So What? In this book, Daniel Kahneman summarizes decades of research to help us understand what really goes on inside our heads, the psychological basis for our reactions, judgments, perceptions, and choices. By learning how our mind works, being aware of our intuitive biases and errors of judgment, we can improve our decision-making skills, shape how we think, and how we live our lives. Part 1. The Two Systems Physicians have a large set of labels to diagnose and treat diseases. For example, identify symptoms, possible causes, interventions, and cures. Likewise, to understand how we make judgments and choices, we need a richer vocabulary to describe how our mind works. Kahneman does that by simplifying complex economic and psychological concepts in this book. He describes how our brains work using two systems. System 1 is fast. It operates automatically and involuntarily. It is unconscious, can't be stopped, and runs continuously. We apply it effortlessly and intuitively to everyday decisions. For example, when we drive, recall our age, or interpret someone's facial expression. System 2 is slow. It's only called upon when necessary to reason, compute, analyze, and solve problems. It confirms or corrects System 1 judgments, is more reliable, but takes time, effort, and concentration. We think of ourselves with System 2, our beliefs, choices, etc. But System 1 is usually the one in charge. System 1 operates on heuristics that are fast but often inaccurate. System 2 evaluates those heuristics and provides vigilance, but is too slow and inefficient for our routine decisions. We need both systems, and the key is to become aware when we're prone to make mistakes so we can avoid them when the stakes are high. The Law of Least Effort It takes energy to think and exercise self-control, our mental capacity gets depleted with use, and we're programmed to take the past of least effort. Since System 2 uses more effort and energy, our thoughts and actions are run automatically by System 1. System 2 only kicks in for vital tasks that need special effort or self-control. Specifically, System 2 handles tasks that are new or unnatural to us. System 1 takes over once something's habitual or during times of emergency. System 2 also focuses mental resources on the most important activity first. That's why we tend to zone out when we're immersed in a challenging task or mentally overloaded or stop in the middle of a leisurely stroll if we're asked to complete a difficult mental task. We consume less energy when we're more skilled or talented at a task, 
we can simplify the tasks into smaller steps or write them down to lessen our working memory load. One of the main roles of System 2 is to monitor and control the impulses and suggestions by System 1. But System 2 fails to perform its role when it's lazy or overloaded. That's why most people don't think through problems carefully and why we find it harder to resist temptation when we are stressed. In short, self-control decreases when we're tired, hungry, or mentally exhausted. In order to quickly process the tons of stimuli that we take in every day, System 1 uses heuristics or mental shortcuts. These are fast but often unreliable and make us susceptible to other suggestions or influence. In this segment, we'll look at some of the key heuristics. 1. Associations and Priming when we're exposed to an idea, we're primed to think about associated ideas, memories, and feelings. If we've been talking about food, we'll fill in the blank S-O-blank-P with a U. But if we've been talking about cleanliness, we'll fill in the same blank with an A. People reading about the elderly unconsciously walk slower, and people who are asked to smile find jokes funnier. 2. Cognitive Ease System 1 is constantly assessing stimuli to determine if System 2 needs to be mobilized. When we experience cognitive ease, we're in a casual, intuitive mode. System 1 is at work. We don't think deeply and are more easily influenced. Generally, we feel at ease when something seems familiar, clear, and effortless. That's why marketers and politicians use repetition, bright colors, and rhyming verses. We'll even believe a lie if we hear it often enough. When we experience cognitive strain, System 2 kicks in and we switch to an analytical, problem-solving mode. We become more vigilant and less susceptible to lies and suggestions. 3. Stories and Causes To make sense of the world, we tell ourselves stories about what's going on. First, we make associations between events and circumstances. Events that fit into our stories seem normal. When something unexpected happens, we tell ourselves new stories to make them fit. For example, it's God's will or he acted out of character. Second, we often have to deal with incomplete information. System 1 fills the gaps with interpretations and guesses that fit our stories and jumps to conclusions. This is linked to a few heuristics. Confirmation bias is our tendency to search for and find confirming evidence for a belief. During an election, we are likely to seek positive information about our favored candidates and find negative information about the opposing candidate or candidates. The halo effect occurs when we like or dislike everything about a person, place, or thing based on our first impressions. The word stubborn and sensitive will be interpreted very differently when used to describe someone we like versus someone we don't like. What you see is all there is describes how System 1 ignores whether the information is complete or accurate. It only cares about how coherent the story is based on available information. 4. Judgment Heuristic System 1 adopts a mental shotgun approach. 
continuously scanning our environment and making fight-or-flight judgments. When making such split-second decisions, we're better off at broad averages and categorical comparisons than sum-like variables. For instance, we can intuitively describe crimes in terms of colors. Murder would be a deeper shade of red than theft, but we struggle to compare the scale of 20,000 with 400,000. 5. Substitution When faced with the vexing question, we make our lives easier by answering a simpler substitute question. For example, what's my mood right now? It's easier to answer than how happy am I with life? This sometimes means that we avoid answering the harder but more important questions. 6. Emotions When we have a strong emotional preference for an outcome, we will play up the benefits and play down its costs. In short, System 1 works using shortcuts like associations, stories, and approximates and tends to jump to inaccurate conclusions. System 2 is supposed to be our inner skeptic to check and validate System 1's impulses and suggestions, but it's often too overloaded or lazy, resulting in biases and errors in our judgment. We'll now move to Part 2, Biases and Errors. First, the Law of Small Numbers. Most of us know that small sample sizes are not as representative as large samples. Yet System 1 intuitively believes small sample outcomes without validation. We make decisions based on insufficient or unrepresentative data. Once a wrong conclusion is accepted as true, it triggers our associative mechanism, spreading related ideas throughout our belief systems. Second, the anchoring effect. Numbers that we hear create mental anchors which influence our estimates or choices. If you're asked, was Gandhi more than 116 years old when he died? Your answer is likely to be closer to 116 than 50. Shoppers are likely to buy more of a promotional item if there was a limit of 12 per person than if there were no limit. Third, the availability heuristic. We tend to judge the importance of an idea by the familiarity and feelings that we associate with it, rather than statistical calculation. For example, we may overestimate the frequency of divorces if we have undergone divorce or know people who are divorced. This heuristic is multiplied via mass media to create availability cascades. For instance, a recent plane crash makes us think air travel is more dangerous and our fear of air travel encourages even more media reports about plane crashes. This creates a negative feedback loop, or a cascade of fear, and can trigger an irrational surge in insurance purposes or protective action after a disaster. Fourth, representativeness. We tend to make judgments about a person, place, or thing based on how much it resembles something else. We may stereotype that someone who's nerdy is probably a computer scientist, or assume that a restaurant is doing well because we like their food. A more accurate approach would be to look at probability, base rates, and examine the evidence that was used to develop our assumptions. Fifth, 
the conjunction fallacy, or less is more. This occurs when we assume that A plus B is more probable than A. For examples, when we assume that this statement, he has lived here his whole life and knows the culture well, to be more probable than he has lived here his whole life, this is flawed because A plus B is a subset of A and can only be less probable. Likewise, we are likely to perceive an expensive item to be more valuable on its own when it's bundled with additional cheap items. In short, the perceived value decreased when the absolute value increased. Sixth, causes trump statistics. We've learned that System 1 thinks fast using categories and stereotypes and likes casual explanations. When we're given statistical data and causal data, we tend to focus on the causal data and neglect or even ignore the statistical data. In short, we favor stories with explanatory power over mere data. For example, we don't intuitively know what to do with statistical data like 50% of cabs are blue. But when we hear causal data like blue cabs are involved in 80% of road accidents, we tend to infer that blue cab drivers are more reckless. Seventh, regression to the mean, random fluctuations, such as an unusually good or bad sports performance, will regress to the mean or naturally approach the average over time. Yet, we tend to assign casual explanations to such regression. For instance, we may punish someone for unusually bad behavior, then convince ourselves that the punishment worked when the person merely regressed naturally to his normal behavior. Part 3. Overconfidence Hello, listener. Thanks for listening to Top Audiobooks. Remember to follow our channel here on the platform and also our social media. We have prepared a graphic summary with the main ideas and teachings of this incredible bestseller. Click on the link book graphic in the description to have access to a material where we combine the perfect mental stimuli so that you know and understand the great intuitions of the author. We feel confident when our stories seem coherent and we are at cognitive ease. Unfortunately, confidence does not mean accuracy, and our heuristics cause overconfidence in our judgments. We'll outline three such areas. First, the illusion of understanding. We often create stories to explain the past, which in turn shapes our views of the world and our expectations of the future. For example, we develop models and formulas to explain what caused the global financial crisis or Google's rise to success. But it's impossible to identify all the variables and events that happened and those that didn't happen to cause these outcomes. No one could have predicted the birth of Adolf Hitler and how it catalyzed World War II. The truth is, believing we understand the path and know the future merely gives us a false sense of security. We also suffer from the hindsight bias. Once we change our view of the world and immediately lose much of our ability to recall what we used to believe, we feel as though our current belief has been our belief all along. 
This leads to hindsight bias or the I knew it all along effect. That's why it's easy to blame others for bad decisions on hindsight and give too little credit for good decisions. Second, the illusion of validity. Most of us believe that skills produce predictable results. For example, experienced traders are believed to be better at evaluating and picking stock picks. However, a truly efficient market cannot be predicted nor outsmarted, and studies have shown that traders' educated guesses are actually no better than blind guesses. Experts are also prone to inconsistency. The same person can give different answers when asked to judge the same complex situation twice. So when can we trust experts' opinions? Well, expert intuition can still be trustworthy and valuable if the environment is regular enough to be predictable and the expert has had a chance to learn these regularities via prolonged practice. Some examples include chess games, firefighting, and nursing. Third, the optimistic bias. Optimism is a positive trait. However, overconfidence and the optimistic bias can also lead people to take excessive risks. Planning fallacy is one outcome of this bias. People take on risky projects, for example, litigation or starting a business, based on best-case scenarios without deliberating worst-case scenarios or unknowns. To address this fallacy, planners could adopt a more objective outside view, identify others who've engaged in similar projects, use their statistics as a baseline, then adjust the baseline using information specific to your case. Part 4. Choice. In this segment, we'll outline several psychological and behavioral economic concepts to explain how we make choices. 1. Joint Evaluations We make decisions differently when they're done in isolation than when they are made in comparison with other scenarios. For example, we pay more for a better quality TV that's displayed next to an inferior TV in a store, even when the difference in quality is unperceivable when the TVs are viewed in isolation. 2. The Endowment Effect An object that we own and use is more valuable to us. For example, you may buy a ticket for your favorite concert for $500, and refuse to sell it for even $5,000. 3. Prospect Theory This is a key concept in the book. The theory won Kahneman the Nobel Prize in Economics, and it's built on three key ideas. First, the absolute value of money is less important than the subjective experience that comes with changes to your level of wealth. For example, Having $5,000 today is bad for person A if he owned $10,000 yesterday, but it's good for person B if he only owned $1,000. The same $5,000 is valued differently because people don't just attach value to wealth, they attach values to gains and losses. Second, we experience reduced sensitivity to changes in wealth. For example, Losing $100 hurts more if you start with $200 than if you start with $1,000. Third, loss aversion. We basically hate to lose money, and we weigh losses more than gains. To illustrate, consider this. 
would you prefer a 50% chance to win $1,000 or get $500 for sure? Well, most people will choose to gain $500 for sure. Now, consider this. Would you prefer a 50% chance to lose $1,000 or lose $500 for sure? Well, most people will choose the reverse in this case, to take the gamble in hope of not losing anything. Generally, our brain processes threats and bad news faster. People work harder to avoid losses than to attain gains, and they work harder to avoid pain than to achieve pleasure. In the book, Kahneman summarizes how we evaluate gains and losses using the four-fold pattern of preferences. Please refer to our text summary to see the four-quadrant diagram. Generally, if we've a high chance for a desired outcome, we become risk-averse and pay a premium to remove uncertainty. This is called the certainty effect. In the high-probability big gains quadrant, people will accept a less-than-expected value of the gamble to lock in a big gain. For example, someone may accept a $910,000 settlement rather than go for a lawsuit with a 95% chance of winning $1 million. That is, they accept $40,000 less than the expected gamble value. In the low-probability big-loss quadrant, people are willing to pay a premium for the certainty of not losing, they pay more to buy peace of mind. For example, buying insurance. On the other extreme, we become risk-seeking and take irrational gambles for desired but improbable outcomes. This is called the probability effect. In the low-probability big gains quadrant, people overinvest for a minuscule chance to win, such as buying lottery tickets. In the high-probability big losses quadrant, for example, when faced with a terminal illness or a sinking business, people take desperate gambles, often making things worse in exchange for a small hope of avoiding a large loss. When we combine the possibility effect, availability cascade, and cognitive ease heuristics, we understand why people pay an undue amount of attention to rare events like terrorist attacks or asteroid strikes. This is especially so when the rare events are described vividly, frequently, and repetitively. Earlier, we shared how to adopt an outside view to address planning fallacies from excessive optimism. To counter the excessive caution from loss aversion, we can develop risk policies. For example, never buy extended warranties, which act as broad frames to guide our routine decisions. Another heuristic that influences our choices is framing. How a problem is framed evokes emotional responses, which affect our choices. Because we hate to lose, we'll intuitively choose a 10% chance to win over a 90% chance to lose. Doctors prefer interventions if there's a survival rate of 90% versus a 10% mortality rate. If we take a closer look at these options, we realize the options are exactly the same, only the frames are different. Finally, to understand our choices about money, we must understand emotions involved in money decisions. To most of us, money isn't just about economic gains. 
We make irrational decisions about money as it symbolizes success and achievement. The disposition effect refers to our tendency to sell winners, that is, stocks that currently have a higher price than when purchased, rather than losers, that is, stocks that are still at a loss. The sunk cost fallacy is the tendency to invest additional resources in a losing account instead of other better investments. Cutting loss is emotionally difficult as it signifies failure. By gambling further, the decision maker hopes to recoup the original investment. This fallacy keeps people in poor jobs, unhappy marriages, and unpromising projects. The fear of regret also influences our decisions. Consumers who are reminded of potential regret tend to choose safer, conventional options. Part 5. Two Selves We each have an experiencing self and a remembering self. Kahneman found that our memories override our actual experiences, and we make decisions with the aim of creating better memories, not better experiences. Specifically, the peak end rule determines how we view our life. We evaluate our life like a story, focusing on significant events, memorable moments, and how it ends. The actual experience is not as important as the memory of how painful or pleasurable the experience was, and we make decisions based on these memories. To improve our well-being and satisfaction, we should create more positive memories. This could involve spending time on things that we enjoy and paying attention to what we are doing so we get more pleasure from our experiences. To conclude, we've learned that our heuristics influence our choices, which can be irrational, counterintuitive, and suboptimal. It's impossible to totally avoid biases and errors from System 1, but when stakes are high, we can make a deliberate effort to slow down and utilize System 2 more effectively. Other useful details in the book to look out for. This summary outlines the key heuristics and how they affect our thinking. The book is filled with pages of research, examples, and exercises to help us experience our System 1 biases and errors at work. At the end of each chapter, Kahneman also shares examples of how you can use the new vocab in your daily conversations to identify and describe the workings of your mind and its fallacies. If you found the ideas in this summary useful, do get a copy of the book or get more details at kahneman.socialpsychology.org. We hope you've enjoyed this book summary presentation of Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, read by Larry G. Jones. Hi, thanks for listening to Top Audiobooks. Remember to follow our channel here on the platform, and also our social media. We prepare a graphic of the book, with the author's key points and main ideas. Click that book graphic link in description now, and have access to an illustrated material with simple and easy steps, so you know everything about the book in minutes.